Welcome to the Underground Sessions podcast, courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. Each episode will feature a compelling conversation around an important issue. As we step into the tension, we remind you that the views expressed by guests may not reflect the views held by Millington Baptist Church. Now, let's start our session. Welcome back to the Underground Sessions podcast. We're here for part two of our discussion on the Bible, Why Trust the Bible? I'm here with my uh, my co-pastor, Dave Henschel. Dave, welcome back. Great to be back. All right. We're we're ready to dive into a few more questions at the, about the Bible, so hopefully the first episode uh, whetted your appetite um, and uh, and raised some good questions, I would think. I'm having a good time. Yeah, I think so. You hey. know, most of the time you and I talk about um, <laughs> things like what the Bible means, but once in a while I think it's good to step back and go, why do we believe this thing? That's right. So that's what we've been you doing. Know, what am I giving my life to right. and all that? Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, there was a couple other um, uh, in-between episodes. We talked about a few objections we forgot to raise in, in the first episode. And the first one was the issue of exclusivity um, because we would say that uh, the Bible has uh, has an exclusive uh you know, at least part of it has an exclusive truth, and uh, that the way to salvation is exclusive. So, um, yeah. So, Dave, why don't you dive in and share a bit about that? Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest barriers to folks when they consider the Bible mm-hmm. coming from a post-Christian perspective. How can you believe in exclusivity? Um, you know, there's all these other faiths and other belief systems. How could you? Don't say, we all just have a path to God? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a tough question, and I and, would, and the Bible doesn't teach that, right? Or at least we don't believe the Bible teaches that. That there's many paths. To the right, right, right. It's, you know, if you read the scriptures, I don't think you're going to come to that conclusion if you give it an honest shake. And so how would you, well, first of all, I would acknowledge to that person, that's a great question. And I think we need to wrestle with it. Um, but the second thing I would say is all truth is exclusive. And so truth is by definition exclusive. So if you're, if you're taking a math class, mm-hmm. you know, two plus two is exclusively four. If you go to the doctor and the doctor is like, you know, we looked at your MRI and it's a tumor and the exclusive way to get rid of this is through surgery. You're not going to turn to the doctor and be like, well, right, right. isn't there some other ways? Maybe I could like take some vitamin C or something. No, you want that doctor to be <laughs> exclusive in his right, diagnosis. Right. And um, so truth is ex- we accept the exclusivity of truth in other disciplines, but we tend to shy away from it in theology. So. I mean, it's exclusive for mainly this one reason. There is one God. And so if there really is only one God, like Deuteronomy 6 says, then it would follow that the truth about him and the way to him would be exclusive as well. Um, and so God has revealed that there is one way to approach him. Jesus said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, Peter said there's no other name. Jesus made statements like in Matthew 7 that we have to enter through the narrow gate. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so uh, those statements, when you read the Bible at face value, make some pretty powerful exclusive claims. That's a sweeping rejection of other religious systems. And so how do we deal with that? How do we wrestle with that? Some people say, what about the religious pluralist who says, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like that. Can't we all just skin along, right? Can't we get along? It's like that yeah. famous illustration of the blind men with the elephant, right? So one one guy's touching the elephant and 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 he's trying to describe right. it. No, it's like flappy like a pancake. And another guy says, No, no, it's like 
big and cylindrical like a pillar. And another guy says, no, it's hard like a wall. And, of course, they're all holding different, different parts of the elephant, yeah, right? But then, it's the same elephant. So, so the parable says, see, the, this is like religion. All, all of them have a part of the truth, but none of them can see the whole elephant. And so, you know, that that parable is challenging, but there's a guy named Leslie Newbegin who critiqued it once. Um, and he wrote a book. I think it's called The Gospel in a Pluralistic mm-hmm. Society. Yeah. And his well, he crit- did write that book. I'm not sure. That, if yeah, that's where he critiques yeah. it. Um, yeah. And he says, he was thinking about that parable one day, and he said, the only way anyone could ever tell that parable is if they could somehow actually see the elephant. <laughs> that's right. If and they so, were the ones actually stepping right, back so and they're, seeing. They're telling the story from this perspective that they're saying no one has. And so that parable actually kind of falls apart, and it, it can't stand up on, under its own weight. And so... Right. Right. Um, what if, we would ask, Bob and I would ask, what if the elephant speaks? What if the elephant actually reveals himself? Mm. And so that's what mm. we're saying has happened, that the elephant has spoken, that God has revealed himself. So what if the elephant blows his trunk, right? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> right. And so we believe, like uh, Hebrews chapter 1 says, God has spoken powerfully in these last days, especially through his son. So here's how I like to maybe think about exclusivity with somebody who has a problem with this. Um Let's say you're married, and can you just imagine a person coming home to their spouse saying, honey, you know, I'm really tired of this exclusivity. It's just too much for you to ask, to insist that I be exclusively faithful to you. Well, that's exactly the kind of relationship we have to God. We are the bride of Christ, and he expects us to be exclusively faithful uh, to him. So think of it more mm-hmm. like, like a marriage, and that, that's, that's the God of the Bible. And his invitation to all. And his invitation is, is inclusive of all, every tribe, right. Right. nation, and people. And so that's how we would handle that. He's provided a way for all to be saved. Right, yeah. right. Um, yeah, and, and actually, you, you did a great uh, message on this. And that's actually now going back about three years. We were going through the book of Acts, and Dave preached through Acts chapter 4. And, of course, in there it talks about how there's no other name under heaven on which we can be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. And he did a, he did a real, I think 4, 412, Acts yeah, 412. Yeah. yeah, it was a tough passage, but we had to yeah. tackle those things because people are asking these questions. Right, right. Well, the other thing you mentioned was the idea of inconsistency. So people will say, hey, you know, you are welcoming of, like you'll, you'll say there's no more slavery and, you know, uh, women's roles are different, but, um, you know, what do you, or you don't eat shellfish, but you have these other things. You say homosexuality is wrong. How do you handle some of those inconsistencies? The inconsistency objective that people, ob- objection that people will bring uh, against Christians. Yeah. And how they interpret the Bible. I yeah, say. I hear that yeah. a lot. They say, well, you're just picking and choosing. You, you know, you're saying that you're you're for traditional marriage, but you're picking that, and you're you're also eating, you know, shrimp cocktail. So you're not obeying everything the Bible says either, right. and so you're being inconsistent. Assuming it's, you like shrimp cocktail, of course. Yeah, if you don't which, like shellfish, that's okay. Which I do, man. <laughs> Jumbo shrimp, baby. Uh, all foods are clean, right, Bob? Yeah. Uh, so here's how we would answer that. Uh, the Bible says there is this vast difference between living under the Old Covenant and living under the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament, God was working primarily through the nation of Israel. It was a theocracy. It was a political government. And as such, there was a complex set of laws given to the people of Israel. And some of those laws were moral in nature, but other laws were ceremonial and given for worship and ritual cleanness. You could only approach God in worship if you were ritually clean. You could only eat certain foods, dress a certain way, not touch certain objects. 
The point of those ceremonial laws was to convey over and over and over that you can't just waltz into God's presence without purification. You had mm-hmm. to come God's way. You were spiritually unclean. The reason why right. you and I don't follow the ceremonial parts of the law anymore in terms of ritual purification is that we realize that sacrificial system, those rituals pointed beyond themselves to something greater, mm-hmm. namely the coming of a Messiah, the great sacrifice, which was, of course... Which of course, since we believe that Messiah has come, it's been fulfilled. Right. right. And so those ceremonial laws were like a shadow of things to come. And eventually when the reality came, the shadow kind of faded away. And, and Jesus made a significant shift in the New Testament. Now, the moral law will never fade away because it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a reflection of the character of God himself, and God never changes. Um, but the moral I'll, law, of course, is reiterated in the New Testament as well. Right. Tim Keller has a good quote about this. Um, I printed this out. Let me just read it. He says, One way to respond to the charge of inconsistency might be to ask a counter question. Are you asking me to deny the very heart of my Christian beliefs? If I believe Jesus is the resurrected Son of God, I can't follow all the clean laws of diet and practice, and I can't offer animal sacrifices. All that would be to deny the power of Christ's death on the cross. And so that's how we would kind of answer that inconsistency objection. Mm-hmm. That's good. Hopefully that's uh, that's beneficial to some folks. And of course, if you have other questions, you can always email us and uh, we can go in, in more in more depth than we can in just a couple minutes here on the podcast. I enjoy those kind of emails. Yeah. yeah we, we typically don't get those emails. We get other emails, right? right. <laughs> um, okay. So maybe um, let's let's dive back into our discussion about the Bible. Uh, there, there may be a, another question out there of the, or you might need just a reminder about why we can trust the Bible. So what, what are some ways that we can trust we can affirm that we can trust the Bible. Well, the first one is that the uh, we would say the Bible claims to be the Word of God. So it, 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 it begins with a self-attestation. Now, some people will object and say, do we use circular reasoning? Um, in other words, we say the Bible claims to be the Word of God, and so it is. Is that circular, you may ask? Well, the answer is yes and no. Uh, first, if it is the Word of God, you would expect it to say, it say that, right? Yeah. Uh, second, all claims to to an absolute authority are by necessity circular. So, for example, everyone stands on a foundation somewhere. Or, for another example, one depends on one's reasons to prove reason. And that's, that's rationalism. Or one depends on one's senses to justify one's senses. That, that's a technical term for that, is empiricism. For the Christian, the scriptures and God himself serve as their absolute authority. And the difference is between a vicious circle and a virtuous circle. For the unbeliever, they're dependent on themselves, but for the Christian, they're dependent on God and his word. So the Bible itself claims to be the word of God, and self-attestation is the first thing we would say why we can why we can trust the Bible. Yeah. Now, let's just pause and just think about that. The Bible makes this astounding claim that we can actually get to know about God by reading the pages of this book called the Bible. I've never gotten over that. And some people will say it's God's love letter to us. Yeah. So maybe you would treat it, treat it differently if you thought about it as a love letter from somebody who loves you to you. Right. Now, other faiths do have similar claims about their books, the Book of Mormon, the Quran. We'll get into that maybe later, but we do accept our authority um, by faith. It's not a leap in the dark. It's an informed faith, but we do take it by faith. A second reason why we can trust the Bible is it contains predictive prophecy. Uh, The Bible is actually the only religious or historical book that foretells the future in detail and then asks its readers to test the validity of this prophecy to verify its message. Think of things like naming Cyrus the Great in Isaiah 43 or predicting the coming of the Messiah in Daniel chapter Mm -hmm. 9. 
there's so many other messianic mm-hmm. predictions mm-hmm. in the Bible that just right. get fulfilled so specifically with Jesus. Yeah, I think another reason, and this this is a um, a compelling one for me, the Bible contains a coherent cross cultural message of salvation. So the Bible, of course, if you look at it, is not just one book, right? It's a collection of books, 66 books, um, that were written over a period of 1,500 years. And they're all telling the same story. Multiple generations, three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, three different continents, Africa, Asia, Europe. Uh, There's 40 different authors from all different walks of life. But it's all amazing how unified and coherent the message of the Bible is. And that's a real compelling reason, I think, to believe the the authority and, and, and trust the Bible. Yeah. I mean, do you know how difficult it is to get religious people to agree on stuff? <laughs> right. You know uh, how difficult it is to be coherent in just 10 pages in, right. one, in one sermon? Yeah. <laughs> it is a really amazing meta-narrative. Another reason why we trust the Bible is it's way too counterproductive to be legendary. Why on earth would, would anyone create a book where all of its heroes are failures? If that's a fabrication, the Bible is right. is a story about man being hopelessly sinful. The primary hero in the story is murdered. Nobody ever understands what's going on in God's plan, which leaves no motive for any proposed embellishment. Only through progressive revelation does the reader really understand the full message. Mm-hmm. Uh, you th- see things mm-hmm. that are countercultural. Why, why put women to be the first witnesses to Christ's resurrection? Right, exactly. In a day where women's testimony was not even admissible in court. Why put things in there like predestination and human responsibility that, that are very difficult to, to see how they go mm-hmm. together? Why, why put things in there like about the Trinity that's so impossible to understand? So the Bible is just really too counterproductive to be legendary. Another, another point I think that's been mentioned before, maybe we can make this the last point. I mean, there's other things to mention, but um, another, to me- another one to mention is the Bible has been preserved with a high degree of accuracy. So let me just read you this quote from Dr. James White. He says, The New Testament manuscript tradition is deeper, wider, and earlier than any other relevant work of antiquity. While we have fragments of the New Testament that date to within decades of the original writings, the average classical work, listen to this, has a 500-year gap between its writing and its first extant manuscript evidence. I love that quote. Um, the Bible is reliable. You were talking about this earlier with the autographs thing in the previous podcast. There is a lot of books written by Bart Ehrman out there, right. uh, misquoting Jesus, I heard his name quite a bit. Okay. If you push Bart Ehrman, uh, he actually will say that the essential Christian beliefs are not affected at all by any of the manuscript differences in the New Testament. That's the most radical skeptic out there who's saying that the essential belief system that we have is not affected at all by any of these problems or any of these errors. And so we believe we have a very reliable book. And isn't it like our God to leave us right. such a witness? Right. Well, hey, Dave, why don't we move on to, because uh, I think one of the other questions people will have is, is how do you trust the Bible versus other holy books, right? So we got the Book of Mormon, we have the Koran. Of course, if you're Jewish, we affirm the, the Old Testament, although we have some different interpretations in the Old Testament. But um, how do we compare this with some of these other holy books? Yeah. The Book of Mormon versus the Koran, things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, I've read uh, both. So I, I guess anybody can write a book and claim, claim that it's divinely inspired um but only god could produce historically verifiable miracles only god could predict the future in that book and so these religious books are categorically different you know the bible has has things like um 
testable prophecy. You don't see that in the Book of Mormon or the or the Quran. Uh, the Bible has uh, just irrelevant little details all throughout it that just sort of have the earmark of eyewitness mm-hmm. testimony. Mm-hmm. You don't see that kind of thing in the Book of Mormon or in the Quran. Uh, you see just an authenticity and honesty inside the Bible that you don't really see in the Book of Mormon, the, the Quran. And so there, there is a uniqueness, I think, to the scriptures, but I would encourage you to read them and see if you don't also notice the testimony of the Holy Spirit in as you read the Bible and see if you don't also um, sense that this is a this is a divinely inspired book yourself. And the other thing that's always struck me about um, in terms of the study of the Bible, the Bible has stood up against a lot of criticism over the years. Um, lots of criticism uh, and critique. And uh, one of the things about the Quran is that you can't you can't criticize that. Um, so I think that's something that is is compelling um, uh, as it comes to the Bible versus some other holy books. Yeah, the Bible really has stood the test of time. Right. You know, and another another important piece of this is that people will ask, well, how did we actually get the Bible? Um, there's something, when we talk about this, we talk about the canon of Scripture. So the, the canon is the, you know, all the books of the Bible. It's just kind of a fancy word to say that. Um, but the English word Bible means book of books. Uh, and so the, the article of faith we've talked about today here limits the Scriptures to the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. And so again, you might ask, why do we come to that conclusion? So the Old Testament contains 39 books. The New Testament contains 27 books. That is our our canon. Sorry, the word canon means uh, rule and um, connotates the accepted books in the Bible. So again, the natural question is, why why these 66? Do we have uh, the right books? And I still remember um, back when I was younger, I, somebody gave me or I came across this, uh, this book called The Lost Books of the Bible, which were all these extra biblical books that didn't, didn't actually make it in. And I asked the question, well, why didn't they make it in and why did these, these ones that we have make it in? Uh, well, there's no inspired table of contents for our Bibles, and so we got to ask the question, why, why didn't, you know, how do we answer the question? So the Old Testament canon, the prevailing, was answered this way. The, the, the prevailing Jewish thought during the first century was that after the latter prophets had died, the Holy Spirit had departed from Israel. The fact that the gift of prophecy would die in Israel is evidenced internally by its promise of restoration in places like Joel 2 and Malachi 4 and other texts which speaks to it, of its demise, uh, like Lamentations 2, Psalm 74, well, the end of the prophetic tradition gave rise to the subsequent closure of the Old Testament canon and the end of the inspiration process. Now, now if we talk about the, the uh, canonicity, when we talk about the canonicity of the Old Testament, we talk about five, um, five tests. And the first test was this. Was it written by a prophet or someone of divine authority? Number two, do extra biblical Jewish writers affirm it? Number three, is the book consistent with other revelation? Four, does the New Testament attest to its authority? So, you know, is it mentioned? And number five, did Christ attest to its authority? Those are great tests. Let me just maybe elaborate on that because the natural question people are going to ask is, well, what about the Apocrypha? Why not include the Apocrypha? Sometimes you'll see that in Catholic Bibles or other places. Um, How come that stuff is not included? And so... If you think about that list of canonicity tests that Bob just read, they don't fit the requirements. I mean, the Old Testament uh, Judaism did not accept them on the level of the other Old Testament books. Um, When the Babylonian Talmud came out, it talks about after the latter prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the Holy Spirit departing. 
And so uh, it was not really affirmed back then. Uh, you see statements in the New Testament where Jesus talks about the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he's taking this kind of three-part Jewish division of the Old Testament canon. Uh, he says in Luke chapter 11 that this generation is guilty from the blood of Abel all the way to the blood of Zechariah, which is interesting because the last chronological martyr in the Old Testament uh, is the last one is actually in the days of Jeremiah, but Jesus wants to affirm that tripartite division of the canon. And so his view of the Old Testament canon was not a view that it included the Apocrypha. And the apostles uh, were in the same stream of position. Uh, the New Testament writers assume that the Jewish canon, law, prophets, writings was correct. They don't cite any apocryphal books as having any authority. And so uh, we would reject the Apocrypha as being on the level as the Old Testament scriptures. The Apocrypha also do contain some unsound doctrine in places. I remember mm -hmm. one time reading in 2 Maccabees about how they were praying for the dead. You'll see other things like in Tobit, some magical things, and then there's some historical errors like in the book of Baruch. And so there's some unsound doctrine there. And so we would not affirm those, those books. You know, I do want to move on to the New Testament canonicity, but before we, we do that, I forgot to mention this to you before. I think it's important in terms of those lost books of the Bible and like the Gnostic Gospels and things like that, people should be aware of those because some of those things were the basis for, for some like modern day uh, books like the Da Vinci Code. Uh, so things like the Gospel of Thomas and stuff like and things of that nature, um, those are not things that we would, we would accept and in a lot of ways were written uh, centuries after the actual time of Jesus, but the, the, the Gospels that we have were written within a lifetime after Jesus. Yeah, the, when, when people were thinking about what goes in the New Testament canon, none of the Gnostic Gospels were even on the list. That Those are all later, um, you know, texts that, that everyone just universally accepted were false, and they were not even close to being make, making the cut because of you know, because of the nature of them. Right, because the canon wasn't finalized until the end of the uh, of the 4th century or 5th century. I always get that. 367, is that's the 4th century, right? That's the 4th century. Yes, yeah, so the end of the 4th century. Um, and some of those Gnostic Gospels are written like in the 200s and 300s. But again, the books that we affirm were written within the 1st century. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. Right. So, so what determines, to move on to the New Testament, what determines the criteria for a book to be in the New Testament? Is it how old it is? Is it the language it's in? Uh, is it if it's quoted in the other scriptures? Um, all of that's part of the puzzle, but none of those are just quite enough. Um, it, is it if it's orthodox in its teaching, you might ask? Well, in order for a, be a book to be a part of the, the scripture, it had to be inspired by God. So inspiration determines canonicity. If it's inspired, then it belongs in the canon. And so how did people determine that it was inspired? The first criteria for New Testament canonicity was that it was apostolic. So it was written by an apostle or someone close to an apostle, or at least by someone of recognized authority. So Matthew was an apostle. Mark was Peter's interpreter and assistant. Luke was a close associate and partner with Paul. John was an apostle. Um, Romans and Philemon were by the apostle Paul, who met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Hebrews... Uh, you know, was, uh, of course, people debate about who wrote Hebrews, but it was either by Paul or somebody in the Pauline circle, most likely. Peter's letters were written by Peter, who was an apostle. John, Apostle John. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. And, of course, Revelation was written by, by John. So all of the, them had this apostolic connection. The second piece was that there was universal acceptance. 
So that means that it was generally accepted by the people of God and the church. Uh, in his letter to the church at Thessalonica, Paul said, and he writes this, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. That's 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Church fathers considered whether or not a book was accepted by the first century believers as scripture. Now, a third piece of this is what's called orthodoxy, and that means that the content of the writing must be orthodox. Did it agree with the canon of truth, or did it contradict known scripture? Did the message tell the truth about God? Uh, God cannot contradict himself, 2 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18, and God cannot lie, Hebrews 6, 18. So, church fathers rejected any book with false statements about God. In fact, according to uh, uh, the authors Geisler and Nix, they maintain the policy, if in doubt, throw it out. <laughs> so you can just remember that, if in doubt, throw it out. And the fourth piece of this, uh, fourth piece of this was self-authentication. It had a self-authenticating nature. Does it come from the power of God? Church fathers believe that the Bible was living and active. Uh, and thus should be have transforming power for edification, sanctification, and evangelism. So if a book did not have the power to change a life, then it was not divinely inspired. Uh, the presence of God's transforming work was a strong indication that a given book had his stamp of approval. Now, this, this first list of, exa of exactly 27 books came, was come up, came, was a... Uh, Athanasius, the church father, came up with this in 367, and then the Synod of Hippo in 393, and then finally at the Council of Carthage, which lists our 66 books in 397 AD. That's when the canon was authenticated. And people say, well, how come it was so late? Um, and the answer to that is that the 27 books that we have in the New Testament today were widely accepted in the churches from the very beginning. Uh, only later when some began to teach or falsify documents, like you just mentioned with the Gnostic Gospels, did the church even see a need to officially recognize the books of the New Testament canon? The books already had an inherent authority amongst the churches before they were officially recognized. And so there's kind of three phases. In the first century, there was the formulation of the New Testament canon. In the second century, there was the recognition by the church of the New Testament canon. And then in the in the 300s, there was the Declaration of the New Testament Canon. Now, so some people might ask, is the canon still open or closed? Well, there is different opinions on this, but uh, we believe, along with the Westminster Confession, that the New Testament Canon is complete, sufficient, and closed. In other words, there's no need for or no expectation of any further revelation or additional writings for uh, the church in this piece of time. Yeah, one of the questions we got in one of our membership classes is, was that decision itself inspired oh, right, by right, God? Right. And there's different views on that, but we as Protestants would say no. Uh, of course, the decision was done prayerfully and carefully, but saying the decision of the canon was inspired by God puts the authority not on the scriptures, but on the church. And so for the Protestant tradition, we would say the church doesn't create the canon Rather, the church discovers the canon or recognizes the canon. The, the councils uh, did not circulate books. The books were already in circulation. And so this is important. A, a book is not the word of God because it was accepted by the people. It was accepted by the people because it was the word of God. That's, that's a big, big difference. Right. So if you're a Roman Catholic, you might have a difference of opinion on that, right, in terms of the church's authority. Right. 
Right. So actually, maybe maybe I don't know if you could briefly answer that question: Who or what is the church's final authority? Because there's some there's some differing opinions on this, right? There is, and there's some different views on that. Um, you know, when there's a disagreement or a discussion about Christianity in belief or practice, who has the final say? Is it scripture or is it tradition or is it something else? And really, there's kind of a spectrum here. On the one side of the spectrum, let me just use some Latin phrases, is the phrase sola ecclesia, which means the authority is in the church alone. And so you'll see this in the Roman Catholic tradition. The Council of Trent said um, that the written books and unwritten traditions both contain truth pertaining to matters of faith and practice. And so tradition is equal with scripture. It's called the dual source theory of authority. And so that's kind of the Catholic view. Uh, if, you, if you go all the way on the other side of the spectrum, there's the view called solo scriptura, which is uh, a, a big skepticism about any councils or creeds or traditions and it's almost an extreme rejection of tradition that's maybe unhealthy as well and not, not valuing church tradition. So we don't want to do that. And maybe kind of in the middle are two different views. One sola scriptura, which we would hold to, and then one is prima scriptura, which means there are other authorities, but scripture is the first authority. Mm. So there's kind of a spectrum here, uh, but we would hold to the sola scriptura view that scripture is the final authority for Christianity in all matters of faith and practice. The scriptures are sufficient, right? Second Timothy 3 says that we might be equipped for every good work by the scriptures. And remember that story in Acts chapter 17 when Paul was teaching to the Bereans and it says they eagerly received the message, mm -hmm. examining the scriptures carefully every day to see if these things were so. And the Bereans were praised for testing the apostles' teaching against the witness of scripture. And so we would hold that view to be the same, that that's our final authority. And uh, this, this is also stated in other places like the Westminster Confession. Right. And uh, so the scriptures God breathed, and we, we use that as our, our final authority. Right. Well, we're, we're coming to the end of our time here for, for, this, uh, for this session. Uh, so why don't we just kind of finish up with a couple real practical questions? Because people might be asking, well, okay, I, I get all that, I heard all this, but what, you know, what translation should I should I read? What's the best translation? Uh, now, again, remember that, as we talked about, the Bible was not written in English, so all translations that you get are, in some sense, an interpretation. So there's pluses and minuses to all of them, whether you read the King James or the NIV or the ESV or the NASB. All of them have, uh, have different, have different um, uh, you know, strengths and weaknesses. And so I actually say, hey, if you really want to do a major Bible study on something, you should actually read several different translations to kind of uh, to kind of get a sense on, um, you know, what the scripture is saying. And, of course, read some good good commentaries who are reading stuff in the original language if you don't know the original language. Uh, there's three major translation theories out there. Uh, the first is called formal equivalence. And just to put that plainly, that means it's it's much more word for word. Now, you may be listening and saying, well, why wouldn't I want to read the script, the, the, the translation that is most word for word? Um that's because uh, Greek and Hebrew aren't English, and so if you actually truly did everything word for word, it's, it's a lot harder to read for the modern reader. So that's where people arose with the second translation theory, and that was something called dynamic equivalence, which was more of a thought-for-thought -thought translation, which sought to, again, capture what the original language was saying, but make it just smooth out the language so it was a bit easier for the modern reader to 
to, to read and understand. And then the last theory is, um, is the paraphrase. So that's much more, you know, even more than thought for thought. Um, again, all of those have different strengths and weaknesses. Um, the word for word translation is much more like the, the, tra the modern translations you may know that are on that side of the scale are like the NASB. Um, the ESV is much closer to, to that. Um, the dynamic equivalence, the thought for thought in the middle is, is more of the, um, uh, the new international version. Um, I should also mention if you're a King James reader, that's, that's kind of in between the, the word for word and thought for thought. And then the paraphrase all the way on the other side is, is, is uh, modern translations like the message or um, uh, the new living translation is kind of a little bit closer uh, to that. So th there's a spectrum. There's a spectrum in terms of the translations. Well, the, the living is definitely a paraphrase, but the new living, uh, I think, would be more of a dynamic equivalence. So there, there was a big change. Right. That's so what I was saying. It's kind of in the middle. Yeah. Between kind of in the middle between the dynamic equivalence and then the uh, the more the paraphrase. But what about yeah. you, Bob? Which Bible, English Bible, do you typically use? Do you have a study Bible you like? Yeah, I, I just personally, I like the ESV. Um, I think even though it's word for word, it still is is really readable, and a lot of the language is very beautiful. And there's there's a study Bible that goes with that. That's really Really got a lot of good tools, uh, articles about, you know, theology and great footnotes and maps and things of that nature. So when I, I usually recommend a study Bible, I say the ESV is, is a great is a great work. So I'd encourage you to pick that up. I like the ESV. I, I did a lot of my Bible college uh, training with the NIV study Bible, which I also thought was really good at the time. And I did a lot of my memorization in the NIV. And mm -hmm. so... Uh, old, the NIV old also habits die hard. I tend to stick with that, but the ESV is great. Well, actually, actually, I don't, I don't, I don't really want to get super into this, but um, when I was in seminary, they they were working on what they called the TNIV or today's New International Version, which now is um, the if like if you pick up a New International Version today, it's it is closer to this TNIV, and there was a lot of a lot of debate about um, like the some gender inclusive language um, uh, in in the uh, in that translation. Yeah, um, when the NIV, when the NIV came out, um, the TNIV was supposed to do some updating, but they went a little too far for some right. conservatives, and then so right. they redid it. And that was out, more about like the language about God. Yeah, and they, stuff, right? And then they came out with the 2011 NIV, which is the one that you can find if you Google NIV. That's the one that's going to come up now. You can't right. actually buy the 1980s one anymore in the store because they're not obviously publicating publish publishing that anymore, but. But there was, I think there was some uh, some helpfulness with that, though, too, because I think there were certain passages, like I remember, because I was going through the book of James at the time, where, where a lot of the older translations would say would say brothers as opposed to brothers and sisters, so you'll see a lot of updated language like that to make that a little more inclusive. I think people were really, ups, you know, got up in arms about um, language surrounding God himself and things of that nature. Yeah, so uh, yeah. Semper Reformanda, right? Always reforming and learning. And there you go. Uh, I think the most important thing is our listeners actually read the Bible, <laughs> <That's> right? <laughs> uh, so, hey, why don't you start with, with what you got in front of you there? Well, we, we listen, you know, both Dave and I um, like Dave Ramsey, and one of the things that he always says about um, saving for retirement, he says the most important thing is that you actually put money in your account. <laughs> yeah, similar uh, principle here with the Bible. What, what's most important is you actually right. read it. <laughs> so, yeah, we squibble back and forth, but yeah, yeah, yeah. O open up the Bible and read it. Yeah, there's nothing like it. Yeah. I mean, it is just a life-changing book. It has changed my life. We both mm -hmm. of us have spent mm -hmm. our our lives committed to this book, believing that its message transcends all cultures and it's very relevant for us today. It is an amazing book. Uh, we both love the Bible. We, we like to talk about what it means mm -hmm. most often. Mm -hmm. But like today, sometimes it's good to step back and go, why Why do we even believe right. this thing? Right. Well, 
Is there any uh, resources that you recommend, Dave, before we before we head out? Let me just say one. Uh, my favorite book, which is as much as a comprehensive book about the Bible as I've ever found, is by Paul Wegner. It's called The Journey from Texts to Translations. And so if you like what we talk about today with all the canon stuff and the textual criticism stuff, it's all in there. It's, it's very well done. And... Um, yeah, I was once thinking I should write a book like this, but then I found his book, and, I, and I'm like, uh, I don't have to anymore because he's, he's kind of done it. It's, it's, <laughs> there a, you go. it's the most comprehensive bibliology I've ever found. So that's Maybe a, you that's can a write a more uh, a more pastoral take on it. There than, you go. That is, yeah. You're always making me have writing projects, Bob. There you about. go. And then, uh, of course, I, uh, I I had mentioned – well, actually, I should mention two things. That, um, in addition to the ESV study Bible, there also is a Bible called the Cultural Background Study Bible. Mm which will help you understand some of the cultural background for some passages which is which is really important if you're if you're doing things like the um, you know the the Old Testament prophets as opposed to some of the the epistles of the New Testament which are a bit you know easier to grasp and then uh, I mentioned earlier that book by I think it's called I think it's Paul Lightfoot wrote the book um, how we got the Bible if you're which is and it's really for the for the layperson so if you want to know how all that went down and where the different manuscripts come from and things of that nature, um, that, that's a great resource to look through. Yeah, Cultural Background Study Bible is a treasure trove of information. I remember using that a lot for our series on the seven churches of Revelation. Right. I think right. Craig Keener was heavily involved in that. Yep. Um, and I think it's Neil Lightfoot on that. How oh, Neil Lightfoot. Okay, yeah. so I remember the last name is Lightfoot. Yeah, but good book. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, thanks so much for sticking with us, um, Dave. Great to have you. Uh, we're we're hoping to do this, you know, fairly regularly, where we go through some of these articles um, of faith that we have and talk about, you know, why we believe that and uh, where that uh, connects with um, with culture and um, and help to equip those that are listening and have conversations with people about about some important topics. Thanks. This was fun. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. And again, we do hope to see you next time on the Underground Sessions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Underground Sessions podcast, courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. If you enjoyed what you heard today, share our information with your friends, and please give us a five-star rating in the iTunes store so others have a better chance of finding us. You can also connect with us at www.millingtonbaptist.org, where our vision as a church is to see the table expanded for the glory of God as more people step into a life-altering relationship with Jesus Christ. We'll see you next time on the Underground Sessions.